Okay, let's, uh, I'll use the Valley of Vision for uh, Thursday, fifth day morning, the giver, and then we'll pray also for Matt and for the Makariks. Let's join me, please, as we pray. Creator, upholder, and proprietor of all things, we cannot escape from your presence and control, nor do we desire to do so. Our privilege is to be under the agency of your omnipotence, your righteousness, your wisdom, your patience, your mercy, and your grace. For you are love with more than parental affection. We admire your goodness. We stand in awe of your power. We abase ourselves before your purity. It is the discovery of your goodness alone that can banish our fear and allure us into your presence and help us to bewail and confess our sins. We review our past guilt and we're conscious of our present unworthiness, but we bless you that your steadfast love and attributes are essential to our happiness and our hope. You've witnessed to us your grace and mercy and the bounties of nature and the fullness of your providence and the revelations of Holy Scripture and the gift of your Son in the proclamation of the gospel. Make us willing to be saved in your own way, perceiving nothing in ourselves but everything in Jesus. Help us not only to receive him, but to walk in him, to depend upon him, to commune with him, to follow him as dear children, imperfect but still pressing forward, not complaining of labor but valuing rest, not murmuring under trials, but thankful for our state. And by so doing, make us to be a fragrance of Christ in the world. And we pray today for Dee's brother Matt. We ask our Father for your mercy upon him in body and in soul. And grant him the what is needful for Matt today as his daily bread. And we think of Lennon Larry McHarg. Our God, we are so thankful that you have used Larry, Dr. McCarg, as a way to impress upon those of us who have fellowshiped with him and enjoyed the nature walks, this man of, of brilliant intellect and simple childlike faith in God the Creator. Bless him and Lynn at this time. We pray for Lynn in her infirmity, in her weakness of mind and body. And our God, we pray that you would grant her abundant supplies of the Spirit so that she might persevere in these days, and to our Father in the faith and brother in the faith, Larry, that he might show to his wife the character of the Lord Jesus Christ who washed the feet of his disciples. And now our Father, not only is this a busy day with sports, these are intense lessons that we have this morning. And we ask our Father that you'd work through our weariness rivet our attention on those things that, while they may not, at least in this first session, seem to apply to us now, most certainly do apply. In fact, they apply right now in various areas of the world. And so let us, Father, even as we think of our own vanity fair of our own culture, uh, may we also, our Father, realize the uh, challenges of different types of vanity fairs in other parts of the world. And teach us to be those who know what it is to be in the world, but not of it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2.
verses 15 through 17, very common verse, very well known. Verses easy to memorize, much more difficult to put into practice. 1 John 2 and verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Before I get to the text in, in Pilgrim's Progress, there is a character in Pilgrim's Progress scarier than Apollyon. We're not going to deal with him here, but I hope that you will, this summer, uh, avail yourself of the opportunities you have to uh, work through Pilgrim's Progress, hopefully in the, if not in the accurate revised text by Barry Horner, uh, which I guess is available online, um, through the unexpurgated Banner of Truth version or another. But as you read uh, a full edition of Pilgrim's Progress, you will come across the character that I regard as the scariest one in the whole book. His name is Talkative. And what's scary in it is Talkative knows the Reformed faith. Christian and his newfound friend, Faithful, had come out of the wilderness. They immediately saw ahead of them a town which was named Vanity. Now at this town, a fair is promoted there that is known as Vanity Fair. Now some quick explanations before we get to the story itself. Vanity Fair is not first things, okay? But it is rather things and this world as the highest end in life. Things and this world as your goal in life, or things and this world as your God in life. What do you believe blesses you? What do you believe comforts you? Uh, that will determine what you are worshiping. And all too many worship the things and the things of this world as their highest goal or end in life. And then second explanation is the world pertains to how you view and use these things. I'm going to make a little comment about amusements. I don't want you to misunderstand. There is a place for amusements, but how, how do you view and use these things? Because what is the Christian life? It's using things and the world, but not living for them. The Apostle Paul says the world and all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The Christian life is using things in the world, but not living for them. And some questions that we can ask ourselves as we think of Vanity Fair. Are we living in this world, or is this world living in us? Are we using this world... Or is this world using us? We are in the world, but are we of the world? Are we dominated by what the Bible calls the age to come, or by this age? Are we dominated by Christ, or by Satan? 
And so without further ado, Vanity Fair 2017. Let's look, and you have these in your notes. Its origins, the origins of Vanity Fair. Its origins are in a fallen world, a fallen world that Satan uses and that Satan forms into a city. And he has prepared it as a trap for pilgrims. Let's take a little tour of Vanity Fair 2017. In Vanity Fair, there is what we would know of in New York City as Broadway. Interesting term, isn't it? Broadway, which happens to be the oldest of the streets in Manhattan Island. We'll call it Entertainment Way. Theaters, movie houses, arcades, and buses to amusement parks and to casinos, sporting events, 365 days out of the year. There is State Street in Vanity Fair, City Hall, courts, political parties, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, socialists, communists, the Green Party, the Independent Party, all on State Street in Vanity Fair. There's Restaurant Row, where there are the pubs, the bars, the sports bars, the diners, and the fine places for the elite, where there are all kinds of delicacies. On the other end of Restaurant Row, where many of the frequenters of Restaurant Row would never go, there are the soup kitchens and the welfare hotels. In Vanity Fair, probably the most densely populated area of the city of Vanity Fair is the financial district, the stock exchange, the commodities market, investment firms, banks, and banks and banks, and credit unions at the other end of the financial districts are the pawn shops and the check cashing services. Each of these promises guaranteed financial benefits for life. And then in Vanity Fair there is Academia Avenue and it's very, very impressive. All of the buildings are made of marble and of granite and of brick. And here on Academic Avenue, you have places like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Columbia and Cornell. And in the very center of Academic Avenue is a huge temple, a temple to knowledge. And in that temple, there are the rooms for the sciences and technology and philosophy and the social sciences, and the people bow down before the holy temple of knowledge as they walk by, and the people bowed and prayed to the God of information they have made. And there are some churches. There are some that are very small and rather dilapidated, only the elderly attend them anymore. Then there are the large ones, very, very large and ornate churches. They are primarily unoccupied, especially on Sunday. However, those are the places that you go to for the concerts and for the art displays and above all else for bingo and the large churches that are in Vanity Fair. Now the Prince of Princes, whose name is Jesus, actually passed through 
Vanity Fair many years ago. When he was on Restaurant Row and was offered its delicacies, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When he came to the Academic Avenue, he was, because he was known as such a great teacher, he was offered the very highest of degrees, to which his response was, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? On State Street and the Financial District, he was promised the power and the wealth and the prestige that politics and that money would bring to him, to which the Prince of Princes responded, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? You fools, tonight your souls will be required of you. And finally, after his sojourn in Vanity Fair, the Prince of Princes was crucified. There was a rumor that his tomb was found empty, but the news agencies of Vanity Fair, those news agencies incidentally located on Propaganda Place in Vanity Fair, uh, they assured everyone as they worked overtime to dispel all of the rumors uh, that the Prince of Princes has been raised from the dead. And they were particularly working overtime in this season that, for whatever reason, people called Easter. That's particularly when the agencies worked overtime to assure people the Prince of Princes had not been raised from the dead. And the Lord of the world has ordained that all pilgrims, including Pilgrims like us must pass through Vanity Fair, and Christian and Faithful are now at that place. The response of the citizens of the town to Christian and Faithful was primarily to say, these are very, very odd people. In their conduct, they stay away from entertainment way, and it was noticed that they particularly averted their eyes from the hawkers and the prostitutes in entertainment way. They were regarded as being very arrogant when they were on State Street because they affirmed that they had no king but the prince of princes, and they were seeking first not any earthly kingdom but the kingdom of God. They were very, very careful when they came to Restaurant Row. They, of course, had to eat, but they were never drunk, and they never caroused with the multitude. They would not make their bellies their god. And it was said that they actually frequented the soup kitchens and the welfare hotels because they had on their lips the phrase, we must remember the poor. These Christian and faithful were regarded by the elite as among the baser sort of the culture. They were, in the financial district, very, very guarded. We are not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts, they were wont to say. And they even aggravated the leaders of the financial district 
by saying that riches were, at the end of the day, very deceitful, and that the love of money was a root of all kind of evil. On Academic Avenue, they were so brash as to say that the prestigious leaders on Academic Avenue had their minds darkened. And as they spoke of a world in which there is no God, Christian and faithful would respond that only the fool has said in his heart, no God. And to those on Academic Avenue who boasted in the fact that we can never know absolute truth, Christian and faithful were wont to say, we buy the truth. But Christian and faithful, as all on Academic Avenue knew, were people very, very out of date. They were living in the wrong century. They were not enlightened like the rest. And Christian and faithful were known to visit the little dilapidated churches. Of course, for that reason, they were out of touch. And they did not frequent the large cathedrals because, frankly, they had no time for bingo. The language that they used was unusual in Vanity Fair. It was the language that included expressions like the highest joys that any can have, a more wonderful king than any of the leaders of this world, the greatest security that any can have. We eat and drink to the glory of God, and we won't eat the dainties of the Lord of the town. We are to know the truth that is also the way and also the life. And what stunned the inhabitants of Vanity Fair the most is that Christian and faithful would smile and say that they were truly free because they'd been liberated by the prince of princes. And their values were very, very different than those of Vanity Fair. The prince of princes was their king. The governor of the town was respected, but he was not their final authority. They set their affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. They sought above all things the kingdom of God, not vanity and not vanity fair, but rather a city that they said whose builder and whose maker is God. Live like that, brothers and sisters, and inevitably there's going to be a clash in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in our nation. Some in the town of Vanity Fair admired and respected Christian and faithful, but they only did it privately, and they only said that in secret because they didn't want to lose their respectability in Vanity Fair. But the leaders of the town were talking frequently about Christian and faithful. They were disruptive. They didn't buy the values of Vanity Fair. They were intolerant, even though all had to admit that if you really wanted to be honest, they were really quite kind and they were really quite loving toward others. Nevertheless, they were enemies of the town. They were subversive. They had the audacity to say that there was another king, and his name was Jesus. And therefore, 
They were a threat to the happiness of the town. They were antisocial, even though they gave themselves to help out others, and they bothered no one. But they did impede the progress of Vanity Fair. They were a thorn in the flesh. And so they were made fun of. They were accused. Stories were told about Christian and faithful. Really, in fact, they were hypocrites. They were far, far too straight-laced. And in fact, they really were part of a cult rather than anything that was a legitimate religion. They were regarded as contemptible, and some called for their punishment. I can't do better than read from this portion of Pilgrim's Progress. So Christian and faithful were taken aside for investigation, and those who presided at this inquiry asked them from where they came and where they were going and why they were so unusually dressed. Christian and faithful told them that they were pilgrims and strangers in this world and that they were traveling to their own country, which is called the heavenly Jerusalem, and that they had not given any cause for the men of the town or the merchants to abuse them and to delay them in their journey. The only possible exception could be that when asked to buy some goods there, they responded that they would only buy the truth. But the appointed examiners didn't believe them, though they did regard them as madmen and lunatics and likely to be the sort who would inevitably bring confusion to the fair. Therefore, they were detained to be beaten and then besmeared with dirt and caged in such a way as to be made a spectacle all to all the people of the fair. And there they lay for some time while being made the objects of any man's sport or malice or revenge. And meanwhile, the governor of the fair only continued to laugh at their plight. But Christian and faithful remained patient and never returned abuse for abuse received. On the contrary, they only blessed while speaking good words for bad, and they acted kindly in the face of brutal treatment. However, some people at the fair who were more discerning and less prejudiced than most began to restrain the more degraded types and accuse them of continual abuse of the captives. In response, these baser sort let fly at their challengers and began to regard them as bad as the caged pilgrims. They accused them of being accomplices and worthy of receiving the same mistreatment. The others then replied that, as far as they could see, while the two transients, Christian and faithful, were quiet and sober and harmless in nature, and further they regarded many who attended the fair as being much more worthy of being caged, yes, and pilloried as well, than the men presently being assailed. So, after an exchange of a variety of opinions on both sides, while at the same time the pilgrims themselves behaved both wisely and soberly, the opposing groups began to physically assault and injure one another. Then, the two prisoners, Christian and Faithful, were again brought before their examiners and charged with being guilty of causing the recent disturbance at the fair. As a result, they beat them unmercifully, hung them in irons, and paraded them in chains up and down the streets of the fair, this being intended to make them an example and a warning to the citizens, lest any should be tempted to defend the pilgrims or to associate themselves with them. But Christian and faithful behaved themselves with increasing wisdom while continuing to have humiliation and shame cast upon them, and yet with so much meekness and patience 
they did begin to win to their side a few of the people at the fair. Well, this caused the more militant opponents to only rage all the more, so much so that they now sought the death penalty for the prisoners. Therefore, they announced that not merely the cage and irons were sufficient to satisfy them, but that the strangers should die on account of the damage that they had caused and the deception of some of the people of the fair. So Christian and Faithful were remanded to the cage again until the process of law could deal with them. Here they were incarcerated with their feet fastened in the stocks, and here also they recalled to mind what they had formerly heard from their faithful friend Evangelist. This caused them to be confirmed in their acceptance of their condition and the trials of the way since they'd been told about them before they actually occurred. And they comforted each other by reasoning that Whichever one of them was chosen to suffer, he would have the advantage. And therefore, Christian and faithful secretly desired each one that he might have the preference here. Yet they both committed themselves to the all-wise and sovereign purposes of the Almighty. And so being full of contentment, they rested in the condition in which they found themselves waiting to see how they would be disposed of. Just parenthetically, remember that all of the afflictions of the Lord's people are refractions of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. That's what you're hearing here. So in a convenient time had been determined the prisoners were brought forth to be tried in order that they might be found guilty and condemned. Note that. They were going to be tried in order that they might be found guilty and condemned. So that time, that time having come, they were brought before their enemies to be formally accused. The name of the appointed judge was, pay attention to these names, Lord Hate Good. The accusation was essentially the same as what had been already declared, though it includes some minor variations. So here was the content of the charge, that they, Christian and faithful, were enemies of and disturbers of the trading at the fair, that they had caused both commotions and divisions in the town and had gained supporters for their most dangerous opinions in contempt of the law of the prince of Vanity Fair, Beelzebub. Then Faithful gave his answer, explaining that he had only spoken against that which had asserted itself against the highest king, Jesus. And Faithful further said, as for causing a disturbance, I made none. I'm a man of peace. The party that began to support us were persuaded through their recognition of our truth and innocence, and thus they turned from a worse condition to a better And as for the king that you talk about as Lord of Vanity Fair, well, he is Beelzebub, and he is the enemy of our Lord. I defy him, and I defy all of his hellish angels. Then it was proclaimed that those who had anything to say in support of Beelzebub, their Lord and king, against the prisoner at the bar, faithful, should immediately appear to testify. And so there came forward three witnesses, namely envy, superstition, we would call superstition Mr. Formal Religion. And I love the, I love the next, I don't know where, the only place I've ever read it is in Bunyan. And pick thank. Pick thank means a gossip, a tattletale. So we'll call him Mr. 
former religion and Mr. Tattletale as well as Mr. Envy. Well, they were then asked if they knew the prisoner at the bar and what they had to say in support of their lord, the king, against him. Envy. Envy was first to testify, and having been put under oath, he spoke this way. My lord, this man, in spite of his plausible name, is one of the vilest men in our country. He regards neither our prince nor his people, our laws or customs. Rather, he does all that he can to persuade the men of our town concerning his subversive ideas, which in general he declares to be principles of faith and holiness. And in particular, I myself once heard him assert that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposite and could not be reconciled. That's what we call the antithesis. See, John Bunyan was a Vantillian, even though he didn't know it. Now, my lord, by this statement, he not only condemns all of our praiseworthy good works, but also ourselves in doing them. Following Envy's testimony, Mr. Formal Religion was also called what he could say in defense of their lord, Beelzebub, the king, against faithful. So, having been sworn in, then he commenced to testify. <laughs> My lord, <clears throat> I've uh, had no great acquaintance with this man, nor do I desire to have any further knowledge of him. However, this I do know. He is a very pestilent fellow. And from some discussion that I had with him in this town the other day, well, I, I distinctly heard him declare that our religion was vain, and it was of the type by which it would be impossible for a man to please God. Now, my lordship, you very well know what conclusively follows from such sayings. Why, it is nothing less than to affirm that we are presently continuing in this vain worship, and as a result, we must conclude to follow their views that we remain in our sins and finally shall be damned. That's all I have to say. And then, pick thank, gossip was sworn in, and he was also asked what he knew on support of their lord, the king, against the prisoner at the bar. My lord, and all of you gentlemen, I've known this fellow for a long time. Big liar, he didn't know him for a long time. And heard him speak of things that ought not to be spoken, for he has denounced our noble Prince Beelzebub. He has spoken contemptuously of his honorable friends, whose names are the Lord Old Man, the Lord Carnal Delight, the Lord Luxurious, the Lord Desire of Vain Glory, and my old Lord Lechery, Sir Having Greedy with all of the rest of our nobility. Moreover, he has said that if it were possible for all people to be of his opinion, then not one of these noblemen would any more even reside in this town. And besides, he's not been afraid of reviling even you, my lord, who are now appointed to be his judge. He, he has called you an ungodly villain, along with many other slanderous names. Most of the gentry of our town have been similarly smeared by him.
And thus, when gossip had concluded in giving his evidence, the judge directed his speech toward faithful, the prisoner at the bar, saying, You deserter of truth! You heretic and traitor! Have you heard what these honest gentlemen have testified against you? Faithful responds, May I speak a few words in my own behalf? Be contemptible fellow! You good-for-nothing vagrant! You don't deserve to live any longer, but rather to be immediately put to death here and now. Yet, yeah, so that all men may recognize our gentleness toward you. Let us, let us hear what you have to say. First, in reply to what Mr. Envy has declared, I never said anything except that whatever rules or laws or customs or people are plainly opposed to the word of God, they are also diametrically opposite to Christianity. If anything that I have said in this regard is incorrect, then do persuade me of my error. I'm more than willing to renounce my folly if you can clearly prove it. Second, you want to defense the regulative principle. Here it is. As to the charge that Mr. Formal Religion brought against me, I can only say this, that in the true worship of God, a divine faith is required. But there can be no divine faith without a divine revelation of the will of God. Therefore, whatever is used in the worship of God that is not in agreement with divine revelation cannot be sourced in anything else other than merely human faith, a faith that will not result in eternal life. And third, concerning what Mr. Gossip had to say, while avoiding those abusive terms that I have been accused of using. Nevertheless, I say that the prince of this town and all of the attending rabble that he has appointed are more fit for being in hell than in this town and country. And so, may the Lord have mercy on me. Then the judge addressed the jury who all this while had been watching and listening nearby. Gentlemen of the jury, you see this man who's been the center of a violent controversy in this town. You've also heard what these worthy gentlemen have testified against him. And furthermore, you've listened to his reply and confession. Now rests in your heartfelt decision as to whether he should live or die. Nevertheless, I believe it is proper that I should instruct you about the precedence of our law. Now follow this. Fascinating. In the days of Pharaoh the Great, servant of our prince, there was an act made that addressed the danger of those who would promote false religion and cause it to multiply in our midst and thus overcome the whole realm. And so it was decreed that the males of such false prophets should be thrown into the river. And there was another 
act made in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar the Great, also a servant of our prince. It declared that whoever would not fall down and worship his golden image should be thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet another act was established in the days of King Darius, that whoever, for an appointed period of time, would call upon any other god than he himself should be cast into the lion's den. Now, this rebel has broken the substance of these laws, not only in his thoughts, which is in, not an indictable offense, but also in word and deed. Therefore, these actions cannot be tolerated. Concerning the law of Pharaoh, it was promulgated for the purpose of preventing trouble before it had actually happened, but in this instance, an actual crime is all too apparent. And with regard to the second and the third precedents, notice, notice how the prisoner also argues against our religion in much the same way. Therefore, count the treason which he's openly confessed to. He deserves to die as a criminal. And the jury, whose names were Mr. Blind Man, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Love Lust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Hetty, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable retired to consider a verdict. In consultation among themselves, each individual concluded that the prisoner was guilty, and so their verdict proved to be unanimous, for each jury member had voiced his condemnation. First, the foreman of the jury Mr. Blind Man said, I clearly see this man is a heretic. And then Mr. No Good said, Let us be rid of such a fellow from the face of the earth. Yes, said Mr. Malice. But I hate the very appearance of this man. And then Mr. Loveless said, I could never tolerate him. Who could I? responded Mr. Liveloose. We would always be condemning my lifestyle. Hang him! Hang him! said Mr. Hetty. He's a sorry scrub, said Mr. Highmind. My heart boils with anger against him, said Mr. Enmity. He's a rogue, said Mr. Liar. Hanging, hanging is too good for him, said Mr. Cruelty. Let us dispose of him immediately, said Mr. Hate Light. And then Mr. Implacable said, If I would be given the whole world still... I could not be reconciled to him, therefore let us deliver our verdict and find him guilty of death. So the judge, having been advised of the jury's agreement, delivered his sentence, faithful was condemned to be returned to his prison cell and there to be put to death by means of the most cruel method possible. And therefore, they brought the condemned prisoner out to execute him according to their law. First they scourged him and then they severely battered him. After this, they slashed his flesh with knives, and further they stoned him and lanced him with their swords, and finally they burned him to ashes at the stake. So Faithful came to his earthly end. Now I noticed that behind the watching multitude there stood a chariot and a pair of horses waiting for Faithful. For as soon as his adversaries had executed him, 
He was immediately placed in it and transported up through the clouds with trumpet accompaniment by means of the shortest route to the gate of the celestial city. That's Bunyan's description from the 17th century. On December 15th, 2011, 35 Ethiopian Christians working in Saudi Arabia were arrested and detained by the kingdom's religious police for holding a private prayer gathering in Jeddah. The official charge was that they were quote-unquote, mixing with the opposite sex, a crime for unrelated people. But the real reason is that they were praying as Christians. On the day of their arrest, the six men and 29 women were holding their regular prayer meeting. A Christian leader from Saudi Arabia explained the Saudi officials are accusing the Christians of committing the crime of mixing of sexes because if they charge them with meeting for practicing Christianity, they will come under pressure from the international human rights organizations as well as Western countries. In fact, when an employer of one of the detainees asked for the reason for their employee's arrest, the Saudi official told them that it was for practicing Christianity. Saudi officials strip-searched all the women and subjected them to an abusive body cavity search, and they assaulted the men. In a remarkable prison interview with the Voice of America's Amharic Language Service, one of the women who contracted an infection from the search attested, we were traumatized by the strip-search. They treated us like dogs because of our Christian faith. While talking about me during a recent visit to prison, the prison medical center, I overheard a nurse telling a doctor that if she dies, we'll simply put her in a trash bin. The Christians remained in Saudi prisons for many months. The last of the 35 were finally deported back to Ethiopia on August 1, 2012, according to confirmation provided by International Christian Concern, the non-denominational human rights group that first broke the story about the arrest one of the prisoners told ICC a high-ranking security official insulted us, saying, You are non-believers and you are animals. But he also said, You're pro-Jew and supporters of America. And when we res then we responded, We love everyone. Our God tells us to love everyone. In Vietnam, persecution remains just as severe. In November 2009, Sun Kwa Po, a Hmong villager from Ho Ko in Dien Bien Dong District, Vietnam, converted to Christianity. Local officials arrested him and his wife on December 1, 2009, beat him on the head and on his back to force him to recant his new faith. They threatened to beat him until only his tongue was intact and his wife was beaten. Poe was forced to sign a paper recanting his religious convictions and told Christian leaders, I folded. I signed when police threatened to beat me to death if I didn't recant, and then they would seize my property, leave my wife a widow, and my children fatherless and without a home. But the persecution didn't stop there. Poe faced continuing pressure to show he was no longer a Christian and had resumed traditional ancestor worship, something he'd previously refused to do. In February, Poe and his wife were fined 8 million dong, that would be the equivalent of 430 American dollars, and a pig. Police confiscated Poe's cell phone and motorbike 
and incited his extended family and local villagers to harass them. The pressure ratcheted up on February 21, 2010, when villagers stole a year's worth of rice and all their cooking and eating utensils, and officials authorized the demolition of their home. Local authorities ordered the family's house torn down on March 14, 2010, along with 14 other Christian homes in the area. On March 19, 2010, Poe and his wife and their three children fled into the forest, possibly to find refuge with Christian families. Following Poe's persecution and that of two other converts, most Christians in the village stopped practicing their religion. And just one more of the many. Perhaps few places are so brutally anti-Christian as North Korea. Lee Ju Chun is the pseudonym of a middle-aged North Korean pastor who defected to South Korea. He recounted that his mother and brother were killed in front of him, and his son was tortured almost to death. Lee said, my family has paid the ultimate sacrifice for God. In honor of them, I serve the Lord Jesus with my whole heart even if it will cost my life too. He described a time when Christianity was vibrant in the North. At Christmas time, we used to sing familiar Christmas carols such as Silent Night and Joy to the World. Older North Korean Christians know this too. They sang these carols when they were young. Their parents were Christians at the time of the Great Revival in 1907. Now, they're no longer allowed to sing them because all Christian activity is forbidden. That's why, brothers and sisters, we pray for the persecuted around the world. Their vanity fair may look a little bit different than ours, but the same strands are there. I used to say, when I was younger, that we wouldn't see persecution of the Christian faith in our own country. But I don't think I was right. When you find homeschooling families under increasing opposition for their commitment to raise their children in the Lord with what really is a superior education to what you find in many, if not most, schools, you're learning something of Christian and faithful's experience in Vanity Fair. And when we are regarded as enemies of a truly free nation because we say that things like sexual perversion are not only wrong but dangerous. We're getting pretty, pretty close to Vanity Fair. So, sobering message this morning. As we close this time, just two things. Christian did get out. And God did something during that trial of faithful that is absolutely remarkable. But you're going to have to read the book to find out what it was. And then second, we need to come before the Lord for our brothers and sisters. Our Father, we pray for ourselves. We can all relate to Vanity Fair 2017. And we can snicker a bit at the different, very specific titles that John Bunyan used for the jury and the judge and others. And yet, Father, we think just a moment behind our, our snicker 
and we realize these are such apt descriptions of the hearts of those who are captivated and captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our God, we are thankful for the testimony, the humble testimony of faithful who didn't revile. He was like his master. When he was reviled, he did not revile again against them. But he did speak the truth. And we ask our Father that when we are mocked, when we are teased, when we are reviled, when we are opposed, Lord, don't let us use those carnal weapons for the spiritual warfare of in meekness and in gentleness and graciousness and in boldness that is couched in love as we stand faithfully, like faithful, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And Father, should persecution come, make us to be faithful unto death, that like faithful we might receive the crown of life. As we think of Saudi Arabia, as we think of North Korea, as we think of Vietnam, as we think of many, many, many other areas of this world where right now brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing the same types of persecution that Christian and faithful did. O God, great helper of your people, be their help, be their strength, be their refuge, be their fortress. Grant to them all of the equipment that Christ gives in his own armor, that they will not buckle under to the call to worship idols and to bow the knee to that which is not God. And we pray, our Lord, that you would take prisons and turn them into churches, and that you would make the blood of the martyrs to be the seed of the church. And now, our Father, grant, we pray, refreshment to us, even as we're sobered. And our Lord, bring us back to our next session today as we learn a bit about what it is to deal with giant despair and his various ways of seeking to bring us down when our Lord would have us be seated with him in the heavenly places. Amen.